Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 387 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, Julianne Pacheco speaks with Carolyn Sanderson about growing up in Colombia at an unstable and threatening time, how horror and suspense fiction have influenced her work, and how she marries the demands of teaching creative writing with those of producing her own work. Novelist and short story writer Julianne Pacheco was born in 1985 in Cambridge, England, but she grew up in Cali, Colombia, where her parents worked in international development as agricultural social scientists. In 2004, she moved to Portland, Oregon, where she completed her BA at Reed College in comparative literature. In 2012, she returned to England to study for an MA in prose fiction at the University of East Anglia in Norwich, where she was a recipient of UEA's Creative Writing International Scholarship. She now holds a PhD in creative and critical writing from UEA, and has taught both there and at Sheffield Hallam University. Julianne had a short story on the long list for the Sunday Times Prize and is also the only writer to have two stories in the 2015 anthology of the best British short stories. Her short stories have been broadcast on BBC Radio 4 and published by The New Yorker, Granter, The White Review and Lighthouse, among others. She holds dual citizenship in the UK and the US. Whilst Julianne now lives in Norwich, UK, it is to her childhood home of Colombia that her fiction transports us, a beautiful biodiverse country that was for many years riven by armed conflict between government forces, leftist guerrilla groups and right-wing paramilitaries. This conflict and its legacy provides the simmering backdrop both to Julianne's short stories in her collection The Lucky Ones and to her novel The Ant Hill, both examine the ongoing effects of Colombia's troubled political history on ordinary people. Her compelling, often unsettling fiction provides a vivid and immersing portrait of a country that most of us only hear about in headlines. So, Julianne, is that something you actually seek to do in your fiction? Um, Give us a deeper dive into a country many readers associate only with um, conflict and and probably cocaine as well? Uh, Or are you just irresistibly drawn to write about the place where you spent your formative years? Well, that's a really good question. Um, Yeah, I mean, a lot of the writers that I'm really drawn to have talked about fiction as a way of trying to make sense and not in the way of providing an answer, but more in the way of like asking a question. So I suppose if there's been a question in my fiction so far, it would be about Columbia of just what did it mean to grow up there? Like, what did it mean to me? Like how to make sense of, of that noise and that kind of environment that surrounded me. And definitely when I'm writing, because I'm writing in English for an English speaking audience. And then my work is, you know, I've been fortunate that it's been, it's been translated into Spanish so that Colombian, like Spanish speaking audiences can read it. But definitely when I'm writing in English, I do have in mind that, you know, I'm thinking of people who, who don't know Colombia, who don't know its history. And 
you know, I think that's a personal decision every writer makes. Like some writers might be like, well, I don't really care if not everyone understands this reference. And I definitely think there's things in my books that would stand out more to, you know, people who grew up in Colombia or Colombians. Um, but that is definitely something that I have kept in mind and like try to do of like, I want to, these books to be like approachable for like people who, who might have only like seen or heard about Colombia from the headlines, as you said. I really feel that. I really feel, you know, as a reader who knows very little about, about Colombia, that you really want to help us understand what's been a actually very complex situation in that country. And um, so much so that actually, you know, after reading your fiction, it's, it's interesting how novels do this to you as well as nonfiction. But, you know, I found myself calling up maps of the country so I could see where you were talking about and trying to read a little bit about the history so I could kind of sort it out in my head. And, and it's that, yeah, you engender definitely that curiosity. So it's interesting to hear that it's in your mind as well. So can you tell us a little bit about what your strongest memories are of those years? So, so how old were you when you went and how old were you when you, when you left? Mm. So my parents moved there in the late 70s. They can never give me, like, a correct date because they were hippies and just, like, they don't even remember what year they got married. So, anyway, so I know that they moved to Cali at some point in the 70s and Colombia was just a very different place at that point. And that's actually something I've been really interested in recently of kind of reading about Cali, like, in the 70s, like, in the 60s, of sort of before the time that I was there. Um, because once it was, like, the 80s and the 90s, like, that's when, you know, the conflict was getting more serious. You would have, you know, like, incidents in kind of urban areas and kind of the violence between the cartels was kind of, like, spilling over. And it's just, like, I think a lot of people, when they think about Colombia, like, that's sort of the period that, that they would think of, you know, the Escobar period Pablo and Escobar. all that. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. So I was born in 1985 And I mean, just like growing up there, I mean, everything just seemed, it just seemed like normal. So it really wasn't until I moved to the States in 2004 for college, you know, because I I traveled abroad before, like with my family, like they, you know, were really fortunate that they had like an incredible like work contract with their job. Like I doubt anyone can get this kind of contract anymore. They would get like a month off to go visit their family abroad. So, you know, it's like, I'd been to England. I'd been to my... So your mother's English and Yeah, my mother's British. And and my father's American. So his parents were based in in California. But I never really had been around, like, people sort of, like, my age, like, peers for, like, an extended period of time until university. Mm. And that's, like... It was only then that, you know, I sort of became, like, more self-conscious or kind of more self-aware... I mean, like, for example, like, in Colombia, like, it would be, like, really normal for people to kind of live in sort of, like, a walled community. So, you know, there'd be sort of, like, a bodyguard, you know, security guard, like, at the gate, you know, in, like, middle-class neighborhoods, which was the, the environment of my of my high school and of my high school peers. But that's not really something you see in, in the States that much, or even Britain, I would dare say. It's kind of this concept of just, like, a gated community Mm -hmm. and so I mean I think like a big like focus of my childhood was just sort of constant anxiety and constant fear and just this constant feeling that like the world was a dangerous place there were a lot of really threatening things out there that could happen at any moment 
to someone you knew. So, you know, it wasn't like, I would never go so far to say like it was living, like living in a war zone because that's like, that's not true. Like that's not accurate, but it was, you know, it was a country like in conflict, like in severe conflict. And I mean, I was really lucky where nothing happened in a sense because I had like friends in high school where like they're, you know, they were like kidnapped or sort of like things happened to their to their family and like nothing like that ever happened to my family. But there's always like this sense, I would say more than anything else, it's just that feeling of anxiety and also just like this message that like the world was like a dangerous, unstable, mm. threatening place. And I think also, and this is again something that I didn't really understand fully until I left, I think a lot of things just weren't really explained to me or I just like didn't really like understand like the conflict in Colombo you know it's it's quite complicated like there's a lot of different factors and then it gets even more complicated where you sort of have like the military is accusing the guerrilla of doing something but it's really the paramilitaries who did it who like disguise themselves to look at citizens so it's like it's all very layered there's all these masks and so just as a child as a teenager it's you know it's complex for like adults yeah. to understand I mean, I sort of grew up in my high school with, like, the context, you know, the message I was given was the, like, oh, yeah, well, it's, like, you know, these paramilitaries, like, these self-armed people, it's, like, a really positive thing for the country because people are just taking things into their own hands and making things very secure, and, like, that's what seemed normal and acceptable to me, and it really wasn't until I went to university that... And, you know, maybe it just had to do with the kind of media that I was exposed to. But it wasn't until much later that I kind of got that, like, full information that, like, well, no, it's actually the paramilitaries who were, like, you know, committing all these, like, massacres and just horrible atrocities, like, in the countryside, right? So I think that was another thing of just, like, murkiness, like, ambiguity, like, things really not being, like, fully explained. You know, I don't think that's, like, particularly, like unique to Colombia. I'm sure there's like, you know, like maybe like South Africa or like Eastern, like Europe, like there have been other areas of the world where, you know, people would have had that um, experience. But yeah, in terms of like, you know, specific earlier memories, it's um, like rather than pick out something specific, I would say more kind of just like, yeah, this like constant feeling of like danger and also just this feeling of like, I don't really understand, like I'm confused. So yeah, that was... In a nutshell, yeah, that's what I would say. Well, and that really, having having read your short stories, having read your novel, The Ant Hill, that really figures because it's amazing. Here we sit in a very quiet suburban street in leafy Norwich. And I mean, it feels many, many moons away where the, the, the sort of the, the territory that you're describing and the events that you are describing quite unsparingly in your fiction quite a lot. But what you said there, I mean, it really it really figures that it's still such a preoccupation for you trying to, trying to process all of that, I guess, in a way, but also trying to, trying to portray that for others, as, as, as we've said. I'm wondering, because I, I noticed that there's quite a lot of literary references in, in your books to books of childhood, but also you mention Roberto Bolaño and Gabriel García Márquez, two very famous writers from Colombia. What was your childhood reading like? Because there are elements of sort of horror in your in your writing. Did, was that reflected in how, how did that growing up in that environment affect what you what you read? Mm. I mean, I feel like 
I definitely sort of have the British side of my family to thank for that. You know, a lot of the literature I sort of remember lining the shelves of my childhood. I feel like England, especially in terms of like writing for children, has like a really strong tradition of of kind of writing kind of pretty scary, like messed up stuff for children. You know, I mean, Peter Pan is quite a disturbing... <laughs> I, I always wonder about that, that kind of the disturbing bit children's stories that one reads are a way of what, helping one make sense mm-hmm. of tricky things, yeah, I guess. Definitely. Or, you know, like Roald Dahl would be like another yes. classic yes, example. Yes. You know, so I mean things like The Secret Garden. I love this writer called Robert Westall who, who wrote a lot of like ghost stories. And machine um, Gunners. Mm-hmm. Blitz Cat. Yes. So, yeah, I mean, I was... Um, you know, both my parents are social scientists. Like, you know, my father in particular was never like a big kind of fiction reader, but they they both really encourage like reading. So I'm really thankful for them that they just had so many books in the house. I think that was like the main thing that made made a difference. So I think it was also helpful in the sense of just not being very picky about the genre, but just sort of being open to anything of like, oh, you know, I'll just kind of read... I'll read anything. And then my parents, they never, I mean, maybe they should have, but they never really censored anything or said like, oh, you should read this or you shouldn't read that. Like, and I think that was, I think that was really helpful too. But yeah. Best kind of parents, I Mm -hmm. think. Yeah. It's just, there's almost like too many books to choose from. When you're talking there, it feels like they're sort of an escape. Well, yeah. I mean, like a big part of it is like, you know, as a child, like, I don't ever remember, like, walking to a park. Like, I wasn't really allowed to, to ever go anywhere on my own. So I'm just like, oh, maybe that's why it's just, like, I ended up reading a lot because, like, that was just something I could do. You yeah. Know? Well, it's, it's like, even when, like, we walk the dogs, like, my mom, not, like, all the time, but, like, you know, kind of later, like, we would have... You know, this man, like, we employed, like, he wasn't really a security guard. It was like he was part of the family. He did, like, all kinds of tasks around the house. would be kind of like, oh, yeah, like, if you're walking the dog, like, he should go with you. Like, as two teenage girls, like, you should not be walking Mm. by yourself. Like, who knows, like, if how much of it was just kind of, like, my parents, like, paranoia, which is, like, understandable because, I mean, I don't have any kids, but I would assume that as a parent, sort of a very strong instinct you have is, like, you want to protect your child. Like, you don't want something to happen to them like you don't want to have that feeling of like oh if I had only done this extra step then this this wouldn't have happened because you know I mean for example the church where my father went like one Sunday like he didn't go I don't remember why and then that was the Sunday that you know they kidnapped like 40 people so it's one of those crazy things of just like he just wasn't there like that particular day yeah so an an element of escape in your childhood reading, I can, and, and an element of different horizons and places that you could go to through reading, given that your childhood was pretty restricted in terms of where you were allowed to go and the boundaries of it. But I found it really interesting because your fiction is quite playful in places. It's quite it's quite political. But it also has this real, uh, what am I right in thinking that there's a horror kind of gothic element to it as well? I mean, we have everything from a story where there are kind of horrible descriptions of parasites kind of emerging from human flesh. There are sort of slightly ghostly passages where, you know, there are presences that we're not quite sure who's there and who's not. It feels like that kind of writing is, a, is an influence on you. Oh, definitely. I mean, even to this day, 
I mean, I think even when I was writing The Ant Hell, I was reading books like there's this Argentinian writer called Mariana Enriquez who wrote a really good short story collection called Things We Lost in the Fire, where she's using kind of language and imagery from like H.P. Lovecraft to explore the effects of the dictatorship in, in Argentina. And I just thought that was like such a good book and such a clever way of... Um, of how she did that. So, so, you know, I was reading her when I was writing the ant hell and also people, you know, like MR James, like Robert Aikman. I really like them where it's more about like the feeling of horror rather than the explanation. And I think what's useful about horror as a writer, like in a work of fiction is that it creates suspense and then suspense is good because it makes the reader want to keep turning the pages. It's that feeling of like, I want to look away, but I also don't. So that's really useful because, you know, I think suspense or just interest is a really important element of fiction of just wanting people to keep turning the pages, like with that sense of like dread. And then personally, I've just always really liked fiction that makes me feel something, even if that feeling is disturbed or horrified. I've had quite a few people you know, tell me like, oh, I just thought this was really disturbing and really messed up. And I mean, I feel like mission accomplished when people <laughs> tell me that. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, I'm just thinking, I'm, I'm just thinking now the very first story in, in the Lucky Ones, Lucky is a, is a great example of a story that's, that's very, very suspenseful and, you know, has that element of what's going to happen. It's real heart in the mouth stuff right up to the kind of final final line so that's definitely a very enjoyable element to your writing but of course you're you're very unsparing about things that really happened you know in terms of the the violence and the events and the people who have been caught up in that uh and whose lives have been permanently affected I mean you're 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 unsparing about that I mean I guess there wouldn't be any point in being anything else yeah I mean something um like, I've been, like, really fortunate where I've had, or I've been in the situation where, you know, my books have been translated into Spanish and published by a Colombian publisher. And so that was really important to me that, like, my work could be read by Colombians and that, you know, I was able to do Colombian literary festivals and meet Colombian readers. And it would, it would kind of mean something to me to have, like, a Colombian reader tell me, like, wow, like, I feel like you really got this right. Like, you really captured this. But then I also had some people kind of comment to me, and I think this was a completely fair reaction. And obviously not everyone, it's just like one or two people, but then that's kind of what you remember. But I think it's like an interesting piece of feedback of like some, you know, Colombians. And I think quite fairly have this reaction of like, oh, so like another book about the conflict, like another book that kind of has characters involved in the drug trade. Which, to be fair, in my book is, like, tangential. There are quite a lot of characters. I have to kind of justify myself. Um, But but I think that... I think that kind of sense of exhaustion is is very understandable. And I mean, like, I did think about it where I was like, I want to do this respectfully. Like, I don't want to do this. I was very thoughtful about, like, what I did or didn't want to put on the page and, like, what I did or didn't want to do um, in terms of, like, what kind of violence was shown or like what kind of perspectives or point of views were used right I mean for example in the lucky ones I have one story with the point of view of a maid like someone who's working as a maid in the house and it's like I wrote that in second person because I felt like having 
that distance. Like I didn't really feel comfortable having that story in first person and kind of ventriloquizing. So, you know, I think every writer kind of has that bag of tools or, the, or that bag of tricks where you can like approach difficult material. But yeah, I mean, I think, I think especially in the kind of very early stages of your writing career, sometimes you just need to sort of write what like you feel like you need to write because if you start questioning or like worrying too much of like what people will think or what people will criticize, it will just end up being like paralyzed. So mm. at a certain point you just kind of need to be like, well, I just need to do this like for me and deal with the consequences later. It's, it's so interesting though, you know, listening to you, particularly what you were saying about tackling the, the story about the maid. And because of, of course there's been so much discussion recently of who's allowed to write about what mm. and uh, who's allowed to put themselves in the shoes of what character and, you know, those considerations. And of course, you know, for fiction writers, imagination is... Is, is key isn't it you have such an insider but an outside perspective as mm -hmm. well because of your because of your upbringing and your heritage I mean you you're part British you're part American you're part Portuguese as well you were saying from uh from grandparents from from the Azores mm -hmm. so um it's it's so interesting that you know especially at a time when we've all been very much confined to barracks mm -hmm. I find reading your fiction so fascinating because it's just cram full of global influences really and also a strong element of the anthill which I, I really enjoyed is the sort of sending up of the young westerners the young people mm. who've sort of parachuted themselves in to do good you know in uh, in, in the anthill which is a sort of children's center isn't it for kind of street children and and that sense of um you know that kind of uneasy relationship between the west and how we feel that we want to help and how we don't help and that's that's true in a political sense as well I think mm. isn't it yeah or even just like what it means to travel right it's like is traveling just about assembling like a series of images that sort of just tells a story yeah. like a narrative about like what a good my gap person, year, my gap year, you are. Sort of, yeah. One of my favorite books is, is The Magic Mountain by Thomas Mann, where, you know, someone, he just stays in one place for like 800 pages, but it's like an incredible journey. I mean, especially this past year, that's made me reframe the way that I look at travel. I still miss it, but it was still good getting to, I feel like I got to know sort of like my local neighborhood in like a way that I maybe wouldn't have. I don't think any of us thought that we would get to know our our houses quite so intimately no. <laughs> as we have the past year. Yeah, it feels almost like a sort of nostalgic thing, these these kids who are sort of on their gap years mm -hmm. and, you know, about to go to Yale. Yeah. And, I would probably uh, be Harvard. more understanding to them. I was like, oh yeah, good for them. They've had such a miserable time. Like, go for it. And um, I was interested to ask you as well. So we have a short story collection, The Lucky Ones. We have a novel, The Ant Hill. So in many ways, the territory is, is the same in terms of, obviously, it's the bed set in Colombia. And I wondered how they sit together for you in terms of short stories, novels. Are they very much kind of um, hand in hand or do you see them as very different things in your, in your writing? Mm. I feel like I still have yet to write like a quote unquote true or like authentic short story collection because like technically in the lucky ones since like they're connected like there's yes. still this kind of novelistic yes I should have said that they, they all fit together yeah um, so um 
like in the past when you know I've had to teach like a class about like a short story or whatever I think like kind of standalone short stories you know things that kind of have to exist on on their own to me they're almost kind of more like poems right because it's sort of like this is all you get and I feel like in a way like I have yet to do that so I feel like that's something in my career that I I will still need to do but yeah I mean in terms of the writing process yeah like with the lucky ones it's um and that's why I think a lot of writers like you know, begin with short stories. Um, not to make it sound like, oh, it's like a lesser form, it's like a training ground for the novel. Like, as I said earlier, I actually think it's harder to do than writing a novel. Um, but at least, like, in terms of the short story, you're, it's, it's smaller, right? So at least it's kind of like you just work on getting that, those 5,000 words or, like, 3,000 words or 8,000 words of just getting that right. Whereas a novel, like, it's just longer. <laughs> it's just more words and you need to think more about the overall shape of a novel. So I found find it I'm glad that I started like with with the lucky ones because it was just sort of more manageable, mm. I think. And you're you're now an experienced teacher of creative writing as well. And I, I wondered whether that's a sort of the the day job and feels very separate from your writing or whether in some way that sort of fuels and enhances your sort of creative time. Mm. Yeah, that's a really good question. I think the good things that I've gotten from teaching is, especially if you if you have a classroom of sort of very like passionate, kind of dedicated, enthusiastic students, that 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 that's kind of feel for you, right? You're kind of thinking about things, you know. You're close reading a short story, like I can find that very inspiring. And then also just being like in the company of just other people who just really love literature, I think is always really fruitful. And so that's something that I can get both as a teacher or, or as a student. But I also think, like, honestly speaking, like, on on the flip side, you know, as a teacher, sometimes you're really expected to kind of give, like, a lot, like, a lot of your energy, like, a lot of your time. I think especially, I don't know if it's different in literature, like, I've only ever taught, like, creative writing. You know, it can be something that people feel really anxious about, and, like, understandably so. So I've definitely kind of felt, like, the pressure of just having my words kind of mean a lot to the student and you can tell someone like logically like oh you know like it's not the sort of be all and end all I heard talk among my former colleagues of saying like oh like it would sort of make more sense for creative writing courses to just be pass fail because the idea of sort of giving a piece of creative writing work like a number like a numerical assessment just creates all kinds of complicated feelings right so that was something I always found like like very challenging because you know you either have people who are like coming to writing like quite late in life so you know it's just kind of like I've been waiting for this moment for a long time or the flip side of people who are like very young so this is sort of like you know all they've ever done it's like a, a huge part of their identity. I have a lot of admiration for people who can teach full-time and write on the side like I found it very training so I feel like that's something I still need to try to figure out how to do like how to get that balance so that like I don't end up so depleted so that I end up having like some gas in the tank like left for me yes very demanding and and I was just thinking there as you were talking about it's that sort of evolution of each of us as individual writers all those myriad influences and yet you still have to find your own voice and you still have mm-hmm. to find your own path don't you and it's yeah quite a, that's, when I think about it now, it's it's maybe sounds obvious, but it's a it's a big thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean that was definitely something that I, 
like miss about teaching it's just that kind of like exposure to like people's voices and like people's stories like in that sense like being in a classroom it's a really good antidote to writing which is can be very solitary you're just like in your head with your thoughts you know the blank page the laptop and so I always find that very refreshing and like very reinvigorating of just you know like I believe that like everyone has a story to tell in a way that only they can tell like I think that's that's kind of like a cornerstone of my of my philosophy maybe it was just kind of like the marking and the feedback and like the administration the kind of you know more yes. <laughs> Yes. That hand side of it that was more challenging. Yes, yes. And the two things, are, the two jobs are re related, but on the other hand, also very different in terms of what they demand in terms of their working conditions, mm. I suppose. What do you think are the preoccupations which run through all your work and probably will do for the foreseeable future, let's say? Mm. Something I've been doing like recently is sort of like reading someone's body of work in order so like specifically I was doing that with like Doris Lessing and with like J.D. Ballard and could see a because I read sort of like their later books but I hadn't really started the, the beginning and then gone in order and it was interesting to me that like right from the very beginning like you do see kind of like these early like concerns right I mean especially for like J.D. Ballard of just kind of like the collapse of society basically yeah I don't know if that's like something I can assess now. I think so far, I think it's interesting because, you know, I'm working on like a new project now. And so, so far, like all my narrators have been, have been like female, not all of them. Cause sometimes you have a point of view from, from like a male character, but I seem to use like female narrators more often. I mean, with the new book I'm working on, like, I don't want to talk about it too much. Cause it's kind of like, you don't want to like ruin a project that's still in the early stages, but I'm kind of telling myself like, Oh, okay. Like this will be sort of like, my last book about Colombia or like about these themes of just like trying to like make sense of this feeling of, of danger or like looking back on your childhood and trying to understand that. And then hopefully with my fourth and fifth book, it'll be something new, something different. I mean, I do worry about that. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to repeat myself or just write about the same thing all the time. But, um, but then again, like a lot of the writers that I really like, like Roberta Polano or like David Mitchell, like they, you see the sort of like the same concerns come well, up in their work all the time. A lot of writers do that brilliantly, mm -hmm. actually, don't they? You know, their territory is, I mean, when I think of someone like Anne Tyler, who mm -hmm. I, you know, I hugely admire. I mean, yeah. it's, it's all in a very small contained. Or even like know. Ishiguro, like with his new yes. book, like Clara and the Sun. Like I read some critiques of it where people were like, it's basically just remains of the day and I was like well that's one of my favorite books of all time so and also like I don't think that's a very fair accurate thing to say but yeah he's another example of someone where it's like you have that same kind of like reserved first person narrator who can't really tell themselves like the full truth about their situation like that's basically arguably the plot of, of most of his books if not all of them so I don't think it's surprising that like writers have an obsession that they keep coming back to because I mean like if you want to write like it has to be something you have to be pretty into it if you want to do it because it's like you have to sit a lot unless yes. you have a standing yes. desk so it's like if you're going to do it like it really needs to be about something you're interested in or that you feel really compelled to tell because otherwise it's probably really not like worth your time or energy <laughs> so yeah like it better be something you're you're obsessed with I suppose well, and I guess we could say that literature is partly there to help us make sense of mm -hmm. recurring human issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 
Definitely. No, I, I really believe that. I've actually just read two books recently. I got some advanced proofs of the new Sarah Moss and Sarah Hall novels, which are about lockdown, which are about the pandemic. They did make me think about like as a writer, like you might not even really see it like at the time that that's what you're doing, but like you are kind of processing the issues of the age, right? So you might not even be able to see what you've done until 10 years later, you know? And that's a good thing about literature because I feel like we, or at least I do, I feel like I live in a time where it's about a lot about like hype or like the present or the moment and there's just like hundreds of things trying to get your attention. So I find it reassuring to think about that. You kind of need that, that slowness, like that kind of time to pass before you sort of see like what what has stuck around, like what is valuable. And like, that's something that I think is really good about, about books, about literature. Thank you so much, Julianne. Thank you. That was Julianne Pacheco in conversation with Carolyn Sanderson. You can find out more about Julianne on her website at www.juliannepacheco.com. And that concludes episode 387, which was recorded by Carolyn Sanderson and produced by Kona McPhee. Coming up in episode 388 in Me and My Audience, RLF writers look at the influence of audiences on the actual process of writing. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.uk. Thanks for listening.